Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also available in iTunes and at thejazzsession.com. The Jazz Session is looking for some sponsors. If you or your multinational corporation would like to reach the intelligent, dedicated, good-looking, athletic listeners that the Jazz Session tends to attract, feel free to contact me via the contact page at thejazzsession.com. There are many interesting levels of sponsorship, which I intend to invent as soon as you contact me. Today's guest is Roland Vasquez. He and his big band have a new CD called The Visitor, and it begins with a tune called Urantia. My guest is composer Roland Vasquez. He and the Roland Vasquez band have a new album called The Visitor, which is uh, very exciting, and it's my pleasure to welcome Roland to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So uh, I guess let's start right out of the gate with, uh, well, this used to be the kind of question you would ask, and it would seem out of place, but maybe it's not so much so these days. Why a, why a large ensemble for this record? Well, uh, I had a big band in the 90s in New York City, uh, which we had a lot of excitement and a lot of joy playing, uh, and as many of the guys as I could recapture uh, are collected back into the band for this project. Uh, but it was a sort of a, a dream uh, situation. I had had most most of my career, which goes back about thirty some years, has been with Octet Nanette. And then because of the economic necessities that presented themselves in the early 90s, we switched to a, uh, to a quintet, pardon me. And then uh, the opportunity, crazy enough, the opposite showed up where there was a chance to put a big band together and go into a club called Zanzibar. So there, there was, I wrote some charts that were realizations of uh, developmental material, etc., that came out of of the earlier Nanette 
materials, and then also we did some of Claire Fisher's music. I had been in his band, Salsa Picante, before I moved to New York. There's a few things in there that I, I want to ask you about, including how the opportunity presented itself. But I, I want to focus on the on the big band for a minute and just ask, um, you mentioned in the notes, for example, that, that uh, many of these tunes had been recorded in, in smaller forms. What does the, the bigger ensemble allow you to do? Well, the, almost all of them have significant developments, either in the growth of the groove parts. I write all of my uh, rhythm section parts out the piano montunos, the, the bass lines, and then there's uh, the new develop, developmental areas like solis and, and things where I get to explore ensemble, you know, indulge my, my jazzness uh, by trying to write things for the ensemble to play. Tell people what a soli is, just who don't well, know. It's well, it's, it's like an ensemble solo. That's how I imagine it. It's where there's usually relatively virtuosic uh, material given to several players at the same time, uh, lines that, that are uh, challenging for them to play, and of course the more of them that are playing it, the more of a challenge it can be, but when, when those things happen uh, in tune and on time, they're really exciting. <laughs> You mentioned that you write out the rhythm parts, and the fact that you mentioned it leads me to believe that that must not always be the case, so why, why do you choose to do it in this uh, ensemble? Well, uh, my my roots, really, I came out of playing in R&B bands and show groups uh, up into the jazz fusion period where a lot of the guys I worked with were actually, the basis of my first band were the Fowler Brothers, guys who worked with Zappa and were in the, you know, very dense, complex, written things that they were playing as well as improvising on and around. Uh, so in the jazz tradition as I understand it and uh, there's much of the rhythm section material or at least in the course of the history was more of a common practice way of playing where bass players would get slashes with with chord symbols etc and the pianists were expected to know what to do and there is even that kind of mindset uh, among some of the traditionalists to say well why would you dare write a bass part uh, they know better how to make a bass part than you do but I also, in my sense of the music, am listening to chamber music. I'm listening to the 20th century music of the composers like Bartok and Stravinsky and those guys, and everything is articulated in their music to try and establish uh, a, sort of a, a strata of, of activity that, that's what their image is, what their image of the music is. And a, a lot of the, I, I say this word, but it's hard because... The word jazz itself is, to me, more of a verb than a noun. But the idea of jazz as a historical tradition, that idea of, of the music being improvised first and the ensemble material coming from a riff-based history or dance-based history, the, the developmental composition is something that has really been left to the soloists rather than the composer. Does it require anything in particular of your uh, rhythm section members, uh, given the fact that you've you've written out the the parts, the fairly intricate parts in some cases? Well, for me, I've been fortunate to work with some of the best bass players. I think of my generation. I mean, Anthony Jackson was played bass with my band for twenty years, and his 
Doesn't get much better than that, does it? <laughs> well, he he is a perfectionist. He he always talked about his ideal being like being a, a, a chamber ensemble or a string quartet type level of mindset when you went into the music, and that's he plays with that focus on detail and focus on time. And this this recording is with James Genus, and James has as much detail in his playing and his own sound and his own way of playing the time, which is a whole other world. So it, it requires that reading isn't an issue, that the players can read and that they can articulate what's on the page. And ideally, and then this is at least half of the importance of the music to me, that they have their own personality and dynamic and in a sense, theater to bring to the piece their own characterization of it. And so the requirement is you, sh you can't have any trouble with the technique required to articulate the notes, and then more than that, you have your own spirit and your own interpretation to bring to it as well as what the notes are on the page. In some ways, it seems funny to talk about uh, or to have to, to feel almost like you have to defend writing all of the parts in the band, because uh, this is almost the only kind of music we could be talking about where that's the... Obviously, there are folkloric musics, I guess, where um, maybe nothing is notated. But, you know, if we were in the classical realm, I mean, even in the rock world, like, you play the same bass line in every tune. It, it just seems like we've, uh, we don't expect that in improvised music. Well, that and that... There's the word in improvised music. There's the sense of... You know, we're improvising all the time. Well, okay, there, and there is the world where that is the living force of the music. But in my music and what I'm looking for, it's a balance point. There is a living force that comes when players articulate something that's a challenge or that's, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's big notes. Maybe it's the, the emotional challenge. I mean, the piece, The Visitor has a lot of big notes. It's not a lot of little details. It's in the harmonic structure. It's in the evolution of the sounds of the chords. And, and the, I guess, uh, uh, forgive me, but the, 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 the writtenness of it is as, hopefully, 
really a, a lever to lift the playing and and hearing experience to a certain level, and then the improvisation is is lifting it, maybe hopefully even higher. You, um, you mentioned uh, earlier that an opportunity presented itself to, to get a big band back together, and I wonder if you'd talk about the Aaron Copeland Fund and how that allowed uh, some of this music to be created. Well, the music was pretty much in place. When, when my wife and I, my wife is uh, Susan Botti, she's a composer in the classical realm, and one day she looked at me and she said, you know, the next record has to be a big, a, a big band, your big band music. And I was, what? You're kidding. How's that going to happen? And at that time, we were living in Rome, Italy for a year. She had uh, won a couple of prizes that put us over there with our family, and I was having a lot of diverse experiences in Europe playing and being around different players, so I was feeling pretty good about the music. Uh, and I said, okay, let's give it consideration. And it came back, and of course, the Aaron Copeland Fund has a recording grant that allows and for, for American music to be recorded as long as there's an outlet uh, more or less promised. I mean, it's it's changed over the years. There's the specific aspects of the requirements, but it's basically if the music meets their standard, which in this case I submitted scores and recordings of, from clubs and concert performances of these pieces, uh, and then you have to have a label that has said, we'll put this out. It'll be available commercially. So that... That's part of their stipulation. So in my case, I've had my label, RVCD, since 1991, uh, where I realized at that time I wasn't going to be happy trying to work with the the commercial labels because my music was always a little bit outside the cracks of what they were looking for. And I, I, you know, being not a, a soloist and not being a you know, that type of a jazz artist, I said, I've got to put this together a different way. So I was able to start the process of making my own masters and then gradually recollecting my earlier recordings to, to make those available on RVCD. And that's what I, was the other half of, to answer your question, of what allowed the Copeland Fund to say, okay, we can support this this music and we know that it's going to get out 
I hope I answered that question well. You, cer- you certainly did. Uh, you also um, mentioned earlier uh, Claire Fisher. W- will you give folks who may not be familiar um, with, with Claire's music uh, just a quick sketch of who Claire Fisher, um, who, how he impacted your, your career and, and his musical legacy? Well, the first Claire Fisher piece I remember was uh, hearing uh, Pensativa, which for a while got credited credited incorrectly to Freddie Hubbard, but it was recorded by Art Blakey's band, and Freddie actually may have written an intro for it. But uh, that was Claire's piece, and which is uh, probably recognized by jazz, almost every jazz musician as one of the jazz standards. And then later on, uh, I heard his piece "Morning," which he recorded with Cal Jader during his years playing with Cal Jader when Poncho Sanchez was in the band, and that was uh, another thing that just the music for me spoke really deeply and then in the 70s when i went to record my first ensembles i thought i'm going to go to claire and show him my music and ask him if he'd play and of course he saw the scores and he said okay let's go and he uh, was on most of the pieces that i did with my group that was called urban urban ensemble and then later the la jazz ensemble name evolved out of that but his influence continued because he asked me then to join his band, Salsa Picante, and play drums when Alex Acuna was playing timbal and uh, Poncho was on congos, Gary Foster, and different guitarists. But his music just always spoke to me because harmonically there's such rich material there. What he was doing, now I understand there's even guys analyzing his montunos because he was doing polychordal montunos back in the in the late uh, 70s and this is now part of what the vocabulary is of the new uh, Latin jazz players uh, on a regular basis but his his melodic material was very influenced by his uh, experience as a jazz composer I, I think he's got over 300 big band jazz charts and I used to go see his band he had a band with Pete Chris Lieb Gary Foster Warren Marsh Larry Bunker, these were names uh, of California guys, but they were really the hardcore bop players that lived out there, and a lot of them did studio work and stuff. And, but his his jazz playing was, you know, world class in that uh, kind of Lenny Tristano, real uh, uh, intellectual uh, music. But he he also <laughs> uh, did the horn parts for the Rufus albums. Uh, his uh, nephew was on, or is Andre Fisher, who was drummer in the early Rufus band. Claire did uh, arrangements for all kinds of pop artists. Uh, I mean, probably I can't even think it's endless list. But he's he is a major arranger, and uh, for me, a major composer in the balance of influences. He writes music in the Brazilian style. He writes it in the Afro-Cuban style, and in the straight-ahead jazz style, and. Uh, his his voice is huge. I never knew about that Rufus connection until just now. I've just I've just learned something new. That's that's really great. Yeah, the early the early Rufus record is great horn stuff. Yeah, was, yeah. Uh, he also did stuff for Prince. No kidding. Yeah, Prince, and also I think uh, for uh, uh, Tor Amos.
a word has uh, popped up several times, and it's usually my job to, to kind of stand in for the listener. So will you tell folks what a montuno is, which we've mentioned the earlier? Montuno is, the, is, is the, 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 the name for the piano part in the Latin-oriented music, and maybe more specifically in the Afro-Cuban-based music, where it's like the driving force of a, the, the rhythmic uh, harmonic counterpoint to the tumbao, which is, occurs in the bass. But uh, Afro-Cuban music, to me, is, is a, a very contrapuntal music, very uh, specifically structured with roles, just like jazz, but very uh, different. Each of the different instruments has a very specific uh, part to play in the, the rhythmic chorale that happens when the groove is happening right. And the montuno is the part that's the dee do dee da dee da do dee da type of pattern that's happening, and that is that's something that evolved out of uh, the the African music, which had uh, those figures in in stringed instruments before they had pianos. It was on guitar or on kura, or you can trace it all the way back into ancient West African music. On your new album, uh, The Visitor, you give uh, descriptions of some of the, the concepts behind the pieces. Were those kind of programmatic elements, did they exist before you started the compositional process, or are those things that you attached afterward, or is it a, a mix? How did that work? Well, most of my music arrives out of, to me, in my, in my awareness, out of either a dream or some reaction to a real-life experience. And so the pieces that are on that album, for instance, The Visitor, was uh, the music that actually appeared in my mind, the basic chords for the main themes, uh, after or as part of like a waking dream experience that I had, of the relationship between sort of like myself, as at the time I had it, I was mowing the lawn, but as sort of like the man of earth, having a sense or a vision of a teacher coming, presenting a, a, a lesson or a principle or a message that was uh, above them, and that the energy that mattered in that triangle between the, the earthbound guy and the, and the teacher image and the message wasn't any one but the combination of all three and the activity of what happens in the world when the message, whether it's in science or philosophy or art, takes hold in the awareness of the student. And so that was that image. And the, the tune Urantia is uh, sort of like a mythic evolution of a, of a planet or of a, of a world where it was the beginning is supposed to feel or sound somewhat like a dawn in sort of an Edenic environment, uh, pure nature, and then eventually m mankind or a protagonist uh, uh, arrives and there's this procession towards uh, conflict and towards uh, evolution through the same forms as we see in the different histories where uh, things get dance and get tense, and, and then hopefully they have a chance to reharmonize themselves. So, so two questions about about those things. Um, the first is, when you were mowing the lawn and you had the kind of waking dream that delivered some of the music, did you stop mowing the lawn and run inside and 
sit at the piano or get some staff paper? What happened as next? Close, as close to that as I could. I remember I can still see going and taking the image of the chords, which those are the chords of the visitor are uh, inverted triads at two of them at the relationship of a fifth, of a perfect fifth. And the the, the bass is an ostinato. It's a guy walking along, the dun da dun da da dun And then above that is like this choral sound that's the lower triad is like the image of the teacher. The upper triad is like the image of the lesson or the teaching. And then what happens with those two chords, which in the big band version, the lower triad's in the brass and the upper triad is in woodwinds, what happens above that with the harmonic series that gets stimulated in the air of the room is 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 the other thing it's to me it's it's the mystic connection that's of the bigger picture i don't know how to describe that part but i did i did go from being outside it was in my grandmother's house and sitting at her piano and putting down those triads and and you know having the 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 melodic material come out and then messing with their shapes because they are they start out in in similar inversions and then the inversions start to shift their shapes uh, conversely with each other to create the tension of the of the melodic phrase in the ensemble. And the other thing that I was curious about as you were describing the, the kind of programmatic elements um, is when you perform uh, these pieces live, do you ever tell those stories to the audience? <laughs> well, well, some of the famous sidemen who've been with me developed jokes about the way I would overdo that a lot of times, <laughs> and I try and contain myself. And maybe that's part of the reason I, I started teaching and uh, went to work at the different schools where I've taught, but I uh, I do uh, specifically the piece Sevilla is one where I I love to tell the people of that what that music was about. It came out of uh, uh, the first studies I did where I started learning about the medieval period in Spain uh, called the Sephirot or Andalusid periods where 
the Muslims, the Jews, and the Christians coexisted in certain towns, even worshipped in the same buildings, while they they shared information of of language, of of philosophy. There was uh, the, the Muslim clerics at that time in 10th century Spain saved the writings of Aristotle and Plato and and translated them into Arabic because they were being burned by the, the the Vatican at that time as being heretical material and uh, this was a time of some kind of curiosity that must have existed to allow those those groups that were so diverse and today are showing so much intolerance for each other in the world. I mean, there was actually a Jewish general who worked for a Muslim caliph, a guy named Ibn Nasrud, who was a, a poet, and they 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 collaborated, and at that at that time, and you know, there's different opinions about what was going on in the history, but they they almost all agree that there was tremendous advance in in various forms of poetry. Of, of science, of different things that were, I mean, in the 10th century, they say Baghdad was the high point of scientific wisdom in the world. So I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I, it's, it's mythic to me because we're here and we're, every day we're struggling with the, you know, the conflicts on the planet. I think it's great to tell those stories to the audience. I mean, speaking as an audience member, I enjoy it when the artist brings me in. And even more than that, I enjoy any time that, um, particularly this kind of music, is made to not seem opaque and like some sort of ancient rite that only a very few people can get access to. I I like the democratization of the experience so that the, you know, the audience has a chance to to understand why you did what you did. I think that's oh, important. Thank you. That means a ton to hear that. Thank you. <laughs> so keep doing it. I say. I don't care what jokes your side men make. <laughs> For, forge well, ahead boldly. They just want to play, you know, and I don't blame them. They work hard to get the to get the parts together, and they, they you know, we don't want to hear Roland get carried away with himself trying to preach, and that's cool, you know. I mean, we're we're here to make music, you know, and that's and that's there's something about that. Let's it's the music that speaks, and and the music that that lifts people or helps people transcend the the stress that they're in, you know. I mean, to me, jazz is secular gospel. And when the, when there's when people are really playing, when they're really expressing themselves, their innerness, you know, at whatever level of technique. And I think it's in rock and roll and it's in all kinds of forms. When somebody really tells the truth, it it changes your vibration. It changes your sense of things and can lift you, the listener, to a new a new space, a new space in your awareness. And that I think that's what it's for. It's spiritual food music. Well, I can't think of a more beautiful way to draw it to a close than that. My guest is Roland Vasquez, and he has a new album called The Visitor on his very own label. Uh, it is a large ensemble album that is well worth your attention. And Roland, it's been a real pleasure to, uh, to talk to you and hear some of the thoughts behind this music, and I hope you'll come back again. Well, it's my pleasure, Jason. Thank you so much for having me, and I'll be there anytime.
That's music from Roland Vasquez and his big band, an album called The Visitor. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at thejazzsession.com, where you will also find Amazon links to help you purchase the music you hear on the show and a donate button if you'd like to give something back. Also, don't forget about attractive sponsorship rates if you'd like to become an underwriter of the Jazz Session. The Respect Sextet have a CD release party coming up very, very soon in the next few days, and uh, you should check them out at respectsextet.com if you're going to be in New York City for their show at Le Poisson Rouge. They recorded the theme music to this show, and I thank them very much for that. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed the Jazz Sessions logo. Please go out and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.